the most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Good evening. Tomorrow night, we talk about the life and legacy of one of our finest New Zealanders, a cat by the name of Paul Callahan. Not heard of him? Well, it's a big fat movie about him on at the International Film Festival. We, uh, we speak with the director uh, tomorrow evening from 10.30, really, about the life and legacy of this guy. Um, Pest Free 2050? Look, do we get there or not? It's worth having a crack at, isn't it? Who thought of that idea? Well, his last lecture is often called the Zelandia Lecture because in that he presented what he called uh, a crazy idea, which meant he wanted us to think about it really hard, that he called our equivalent of a moonshot, and that is getting rid of the introduced mammals for the benefit of the indigenous species. Everyone just about in the auditoriums shifted forward in their seats when he put out this challenge about... Um, New Zealand becoming pest-free. Well, look what's happened. That idea is well and truly taken off. And I very much doubt that it would have without Paul backing it. A great scientist in New Zealander, Paul Callahan, his life and legacy tomorrow night, 10.30. Uh, later on this evening, around environmental issues, the Braided Rivers Restoration Project, 25 years. Uh, it's a fascinating ecology, and people work damn hard at it. That'll be later on. Next up, though, human statistics. A special hello if you've downloaded the podcast. Good evening. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Human Statistics, uh, Jonathan Dodd of Ipsos, Research Director. Haven't heard from you in a little while, taking a vacation, but lovely to have you back to give us a bit of an insight into how weird we are. Yeah, it's good to be back, and yes, it's still weird, Graham. Good one. All right. Now, uh, Ipsos surveys lots and lots and lots of people. The more you survey, obviously, uh, the more reliable the data in some directions anyway. 7,000 yeah, workers... Yeah, 7,000 workers in France, Germany, UK, China, Spain, the USA and Canada. And what did you ask them about? Yeah, um, we asked them about artificial intelligence. So most people probably be familiar with this issue now. We're calling it AI. People like Bill Gates think it's going to lead to the end of the world and other people think it's just going to lead us to a bold new, bright new world where nobody has to work. And they might both be talking about different things. Or they might be talking about the same thing, but it depends on where you are, of course, and how your own job gets affected. And, and that was the key thing. So we made sure we only interviewed people who were actually currently working and asked them about you know, these questions about whether they were actually using AI in their business, what they thought about it, whether they think it's actually worked or not worked. Um, and overall, what we're seeing is generally most people, what you could say is cautiously optimistic, and I think that would probably be fair to say, but it's particularly interesting given most people have actually dealt with um, AI to some degree, 53%, so they're already using it or about to implement it. And no surprises which country is most likely to be going gangbusters and putting it into place already. Chad. <laughs> well, you got the first two letters right, China. Oh, yeah, they don't have enough people to work. They've got to go to the AI, so it's pretty incredible. So they're the ones going in for it. 
and the French are the least likely. So I think it's, it's quite... I, I love it when you see the stereotypes statistically hold up. So we've got the old-school French. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, on and they'll do it their way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're told, we're not told not to use stereotypes because they don't always work, but sometimes they do. Well, the stereotypes arise out of reality. They don't yeah. always work, and you shouldn't judge people no. before you get to know them. But there's an element of truth in every cliche and every stereotype. Yeah. Hashtag so not we, all. Sorry? Hashtag not all. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There's a great podcast the other day about how hashtags were invented. I'll have to share that with you sometime. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, the um, yeah, they're actually called octothorps. The what? So Octothorpe is the proper name for a hashtag sign. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, right. but saying, saying Octothorpe, me too, doesn't quite ring off the tongue quite the same way. Oh, right, it sounds like a shot putter from Czech Republic. <laughs> okay, now those so, yeah. are, people are already using uh, yeah. AI. So they're going, yep, it improves productivity, improves my results, improves my organisation. I'm happy with my job because I don't have to do all the boring stuff, low-value stuff, and all happy, happy. And then they go, yeah, but my job security might actually be effective. Mm. And it's one of these cases, I think, where people are always a thing that's going to happen to somebody else because, <laughs> well, they don't think about it thoroughly. Because mm. we ask people, they think, do you believe that AI will eventually be able to do pretty much your entire job? And if so, when? And on average, 42% said, yep, most of the job could probably eventually be done by AI oh, yeah. in around about 13 years. But 33% said their job will no longer exist. So there's about 10% there who are saying that, um, yeah, AI will be able to do all my job, but I'll still have a job. Right. <laughs> so not sure about that. 23% said their professional no longer exists. And um, when you're thinking about, you know, driverless cars and, you know, bus drivers and truck drivers and that being the ones that people talk about now losing their jobs, mm. it, it stands to reason when you ask these people and, and they do actually say yeah, it's going to come down to which country you're in, your education levels, just even whether you've got a privileged background or not. And for all these sorts of issues, about half of these people were going, yep, it's probably going to start actually separating society even more. Yeah. I wonder um, if... Uh, I got my hair cut the other day, a hairdresser. Well, that, it's going to be all right. I thought you were in a special spot there, Daddy-O. Um, it might be one of the last to go. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's, I mean, you, can just, you could all have pudding bowl haircuts. It could be done by a robot. Yeah, but people don't want those. And then, yeah, and then in the future, you know, we'll have a cross-cropped haircut. So maybe if everybody has to have a number one, then it can be done like that. You know, I mean, how many tailors are in North Korea when they all have to wear the same clothes? Yeah, we have to get to North Korea before we uh, think that's a good idea. And I, I <laughs> over my dead body. Well, it might be one of the ways to get there. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, it's one of these things. And um, it's interesting, though, when they talk about, you know, the high, the high education jobs, high-value jobs, they'll remain. But you look at what they're saying about law clerks and stuff like that. People yeah. just have to read an awful lot of things. Yeah, and the computers are getting better and better. Doctors and yep. people are staying the same. Uh, yep. It's only going in one direction. Yep. And there are some jobs in market research that are now being increasingly done by AI or done better or, and so forth. And it's something I have to remind junior researchers that, you know, if they don't want to be replaced by, by a robot, they're going to have to bring a bit more to the party. Yeah. Chefs, chefs, there's another one. <laughs> chefs and hairdressers. All right. Um, now, the, let's look at our, the, uh, a fallacy, a cognitive 
fallacy, the fallacy of memory. Yeah, it's a real life. We've talked in the past before about how the more sure that people are about their opinion or about their memory or something, the more likely we are to believe them. So an authority figure who says, I'm absolutely 100% certain that this is the way it was and I'm going to swear on this Bible in court, people will leave them. But our memories are actually really dodgy. And, the, and not because we're trying to be bad or, or, or lie or mislead, but they actually mislead ourselves. And to, to illustrate this, I mean, I can ask you this question about where were you when you heard about 9-11? Mm, yeah. So, can, you, can you recall that? Oh, me? you want me to, to tell you? Sure. I was lying in bed. I woke up, turned on the BBC World Service, and Lise Doucette said... On this a day like no other, we'll be talking with Charles Wheeler. And I thought, Charles Wheeler? What are they wheeling him out for? He's 100. Uh, this must be quite big. So I turned on the TV. Well, you see, the shocking thing there is that you didn't turn on and turn on Radio Life. That's the first thing you did. So BBC you did World Service. Yeah, oh, look. <laughs> yeah, yeah. BBC News Hour. I'm not missing it. Sorry. Right. So anyway... Everybody thinks they, and they ask this question, most listeners probably be thinking, yeah, I was here and I was there. I mean, personally, I was working in the ASB tower, and when you're in a large banking tower next to a casino, yeah. the Sky Tower, on what was for us, 12-11, you start looking at your surroundings a bit differently. And I can remember trying to sell travel insurance back then, and it wasn't going to work. Um, so the key thing is that researchers often will find these events are really good cases where you can start looking at people's memories because there's lots of cases that are actually out there in literature that show people swearing black and blue, yeah. particularly in court where it's really high profile, that certain thing happened in a certain way, and then people go and find CCTV camera footage and go, actually, that's completely wrong. Yep. You're completely wrong. And there's that really high-profile case with Hillary Clinton since she landed in Bosnia under sniper fire. There's a famous case with Brian Turner, the news anchor in the States last year or the year before. He said that he had been downed in a helicopter in Iraq and went. they all came up with these stories that were then found out to be completely untrue. There's another word for that, though, isn't there? It's called a lie. Well, it's only a lie if you consciously present the alternative truth. You're very generous. of deceiving. You're very generous towards these people, but yeah, well, I know the, the memory is, and the longer it gets on, it goes on, the worse your memory is. Really about well, late things. That's the thing, and when you look at your oldest memories, your childhood memories, you oh, know, yeah. we all often have those memories where we think, was I remembering it, or is it just because the family story has repeated it so many times that I think I remembered it? Yeah. And when you always bring back a memory and repeat it, whether you're trying to do it for an anecdote or a story or anything like that. Different elements come in. We like to fill in the gaps. We've got different ways, and it's generally quite unconscious. And the really interesting example I gave, like, for 9-11 was that a whole lot of researchers decided once 9-11 happened, they thought, this is a great chance. It's what we call a flashbulb moment. It's like JFK being killed or Diana and stuff like that. Mm. Everybody knows where they were. So within a week or so, they went out to 3,000 people. And it's not like scientific sample. They just went out to all these colleagues and friends and so on. said, write down what happened like in the hour or two hours something on 9-11 when you found out about what did you do write it down in your own handwriting send it in then they went back to those people a year later write it down tell us what happened tell us your memories and they did that I think uh, every year for a couple of years and then went back up like 10 years and their stories dramatically changed yeah. to such an extent that they would be shown what they'd written down a couple of days after it actually happened and they would be literally going 
That's my handwriting, but no, that's not what I remember. Yeah, That can't be true. And they were really struggling seeing that they'd actually written it one way and were very honestly remembering another. And it just proves how it's like a cassette deck. Every time we rewind it and replay it, there's a little more interference, a little more deterioration, things change and so forth. Yeah, And yeah. without realising it, it's just like, you know, wear and tear and furniture or anything like that, you don't see it. But then look at it 10 years later, it's quite different. Yep. And it just shows that, yeah, when we ask people, what do you remember? Why did you do this? What, why did you do that for? You're talking about family memories, things like that. You may genuinely think that's the way it happened. doesn't mean it actually did, which is why it's not a lie. It's a Yeah, but people do lie. People do, oh, people do lie, absolutely. Yeah. But if, you, if your memory is just been repeated so many times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, yeah, yeah. I still think and you're that, being generous yeah. to Hillary. But anyway, um, people who write books about the Kennedy assassination and get testimony of people for the first time, they recall and, uh, it's like, talk to them in 1970, what happened at the Grassy Knoll, and, and just take it as, as writ that yep. that's, or must have been what happened. Um and a famous woman, Elizabeth Loftus, as well. The other way, inserting memories can be done, proven. It is done all the time, and it can be done uh, and has been done to, um, you know, kids claiming of, you know, child abuse and things like that. You know, Peter Alice, that affair. There we go. Um, we could have done with Elizabeth Loftus here. Well, what's really interesting when you look, when you're saying people fill in gaps or add stuff is that it's proven as people are lying and they're recalling a fictional situation, but they're trying to present it as being real, they will use less words and less descriptors because they're actually having to conjure a, memory, a, a story out of scratch. And if somebody has actually experienced that thing, they can recall it with much more detail to such an extent that computers can just look at the number and range of words used in recalling something, and they can identify who's lying far better than people can because of that. So when you this is, happens a lot when people have to repeat a story a lot of times. They keep repeating it. They keep bringing it through contextual stuff. They have to fill in gaps. Once you fill in the gap, and you, you know, it's like when people are consciously lying, you build a lie upon a lie, you're just trying to add information. And people, again, a lot of the time it's unconscious. You try and develop a story. You're trying to make it realistic. You're trying to bring it all, all forward. You're trying to be entertaining. And it can be quite unconscious that facts are either um, deliberately misrepresented or you think it must have been this way. And like, you know, to, to use a, a term we're not allowed to use anymore, like Chinese whispers, the kind of a thing, you know, the more steps you repeat something through. Mm. Oh, the Chinese should be proud of it. Okay. Good one. Um, and when I said, I turned on the radio and Lisa Set said, a day like no other. I don't know if actually that was the first thing that I heard. So there you go. Although no. I'd probably say, see, I told you that was the first thing yeah. that I heard. Maybe yeah. it wasn't. I'm not exactly sure. Well, it's interesting. So my first memory is the radio too. I think it was Jeff Wallace on the national program. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Okay. All, All right. right. Yep. Oh, and just one other thing about memory. I had a real kick in the bum about memory not long ago, and someone probably listening and saying, yes, I'm glad you're mentioning this, Graham. I had a computer program, an editing program. Um, I changed my computers. Uh, so you take the thing from one and you reinstall it into the new one. And, oh, it didn't have this feature that it used to have. Right. And my dear computer geek friend spent ages going through testimonies of people installing it on this equipment why doesn't it do this anymore 
And he found proof that it never had it. Huh. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of fun in games like that where you ask people. In fact, that's been done a lot with experts who, um, and there's been some fun projects like that where you go to a lot of experts. And this is done outside of film. Um, oh, it was at one of these big music festivals, a bit like Coachella or something like that. And some smart-ass researchers went along to all the hippest of the hipsters saying, have you heard about, I don't know, Alien Sex Pony? Are you going to go and see that band? And they made up the most strangest bands. They just made it up in thin air. And, of course, if you want to be hip, you've got to say, of course, you know, you've been listening to them forever. You've got these CDs. And they came up with all this rubbish. Yeah, yeah. And, and academics researchers that actually do the same thing. It's very human. But it's, we can't. We can blame hipsters or people wanting to impress, yeah. but it's just just human. We yeah. want to appear dumb. When, we, I was so shown, we'll, when I was shown the proof that this particular feature never existed on this program, I, I had an existential crisis. Yeah, what's wrong with my memory? I remember it being there. Am I? Am I me? Oh, that's another question. Okay. All right. Hey, look, thanks. Lovely to have you back. Jonathan Ipsos. Re- Jonathan. Dodd, Research Director at Ipsos. Next you, up, Ryan. we go to the braided rivers of the South Island. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Enviro News and Issues on Radio Live. Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy. Quite freshly published is something that looks like, I think it is, a biography of a conservation project. It's called Rivers Rare. It's about our braided rivers. The first 25 years of Project River Recovery, 1991 to 2016. One of those involved is Neville Pete, along with others as well. We'll find out a little bit later on. Neville joins us. Hello, Neville. Yeah, hi there. Okay, the, these braided rivers and this project river recovery, why did you feel it was necessary? Um, <clears throat> it was necessary because uh, the habitats of these braided rivers was uh, degrading through uh, introduced plants, so weeds and predators that were um, invading what is a, a really special part of New Zealand's natural heritage. Okay, the braided rivers in the area around it, Mackenzie Country, the Canterbury Plains, uh, Central Otago as well, so distinctive as it looks now. But I suppose a very nerdy naturalist, botanist would say that's not really its natural state. The Polynesian fires went through there. Does that devalue the argument in, in your mind at all for continuing modification of it? Yeah, not really. No, the modification by the network of, of dams for power reproduction and farming activities have been a much greater impact. Certainly there were fires that the early Maori who were seasonally up there looking for food, fibre and stone and resources, they would have set fires in order to, say, clear the way for themselves, maybe even to hunt out moa or other birds. They certainly had an impact and reduced the, veg- the native vegetation there quite a bit, but actually not as much as what happened in the, between the 60s and the ni- 1980s when um, a network of eight power stations, they are our largest collection of hydroelectric power stations in the country. And, of course, they have to have big dams like Lake Benmore and Aviemore and Waitaki itself, that had a, the effect of flooding 
a large amount of the rivers themselves running into Ben Mornay and so on, and also affecting the edges. So it's not just simply this unusual kind of a network of interwining, intertwining uh, river channels, but it's also the marshlands and swamps uh, alongside which provide habitat for unique species of birds and insects. We accept the dams though, at least they're not burning coal, right? <laughs> that's right, that's true. <laughs> okay, yeah. wins and losses as you see it with Project River Recovery. Yeah, well it was a win anyway because so what happened was in the 80s ECNZ, which was born out of the New Zealand Electricity Department running that network, was then uh, divided up and sold off and so on. Meridian and Genesis Energy, those two companies are now uh, involved in that scheme. They sort of took it on the, on the chin that they should pay quite a lot, a few hundred thousand dollars per year to run a project that would try to restore or at least conserve this habitat through predator trapping programs and through kind of restoration of the areas and even the, even the construction of new wetlands. Anyone who's driven the road into and, or out of Twizel would have come across a number of them at the bottom of Lake Tana Ruatanifa, which is on the Ohau River. And that lake, of course, we know is a major rowing course and so on, and it's very good for water water recreation. Um, below the dam, uh, however, the, there was a space. The, the river dried out as it was piped through a couple of power stations. And so what's happened in there is that Project River Recovery has created a network of wetlands. It's well worth stopping, actually, and having a look at it. They totally fund Project River Recovery and the Department of Conservation manage it for the partnership, really. Mm. It's indexed, so as, um, you know, to the Consumer Price Index, so it's slightly increasing every year. So, it's you know, it's quite a, a big commitment by the power companies, but I think they get kudos from the work that's been going on there for over 25 years now. Okay, you mentioned trapping. What are the particular predator problems? Is it the usual suite or do rabbits factor largely? Is yeah, the well, the first thing that, that happened was the project said, well, we've got to find out what's causing the loss of species like black stilt, ribill, grasshopper and banded dottles and black-fronted terns and that. We've got to find that out. So they set up cameras. It was quite new technology for the time uh, and they pinpointed the problems. The problems are with feral cats, ferrets, stoats, rats, possums, and even hedgehogs. You got the snuff movies to prove it. Got the evidence. Right. Absolutely. Cats grabbing chicks of black-fronted terns, and, you know, it's pretty horrific to watch, actually. Yeah. It actually annoys me how the hedgehog gets a free pass in the, oh, <laughs> headlines. Hedgehogs, they're a killer, aren't they? They are, yeah. They're pretty cute, but, um, you know, they will take eggs of small birds. On that is small eggs. Yeah, and some of our rare birds are small. Um, yeah, and possums the same. I mean, we yeah. all thought they were vegetarian when I was growing up. They might have an impact and cause yeah. dieback in, in forests, but um, they weren't going to do anything to the, to the birds. Ha-ha. They were already feeding on them. Yeah. OK, with the Braided River area in particular, are rabbits a problem? Not quite so much. Hares, I think, uh, maybe uh, as big as any, but, um, mm -hmm. yeah, they're, they're also in the mix. OK. How have you done with predator control? Well, I think it's been, it, it's been pretty successful. Um, the problem is, of course, it's, the dock has to keep going at it until something else is found that uh, would, would, be, would work better. 
So the trapping is the main way they do it. There is some poisoning going on, but not much. We're talking about waterways here, so yeah. they've got to be extremely careful. And I haven't mentioned yet the plants. How do you get rid of things like willows that are multiplied and become a problem for this habitat? Yeah, almost every river's got willows and alder, hasn't it? Yeah, that. And uh, and in, in the case of the Upper Waitaki Basin, which is the focus for Project River Recovery, Russell lupins. The lupins were introduced, you know, and they're very pretty and everything. They came in and into New Zealand about 1930. And we all thought it was very charming and wonderful and let's see them spread along the roadsides and so on. And the nitrogen fixes as well, they so are. that's great. So they've got some good points. Uh, the problem is that their seeds are waterborne and they drift down the channels. So Russell lupins are a problem for the habitat and that's because they will very quickly colonise those gravel islands that are running between the channels. Oh, and you can't get out there. With that, uh, but but more importantly, the rye bull, which uh, is you know unique to New Zealand, as is the black stilt and the black-fronted terns, they will not be able to nest there. Their breeding habitat would be destroyed. What they look at the lupins and say, mm, no good for me. Yeah, well, let, let's. Uh, there is an out for the lupins, and that is that if they're they're planted alongside roadsides that have no waterways around them, right. they would be fine. Okay. Well, let's talk about the unique biodiversity of the area. You've mentioned a few. Uh, they're outlined in the book, Rivers Rare, Animals, Plants, and you don't skip the reptiles and invertebrates as well. But um, the black stilt, that's the poster child, really, for this area, isn't it? It certainly is. What's, its, what's yeah. its status? The black, yeah, well, it's kind of, yeah, it's struggled along, and there have been setbacks, you know, with, uh, with Doc and severe winters recent times where, for example, their aviary was, was destroyed, the bulk of it anyway, near Twizel. So they've had a hard time of it, but I think they're just slowly picking up. There's probably fewer than 200, but... Um, what happened? Their aviary was destroyed? Yeah, the, the weight of the snow, uh, one big snowfall, just uh, collapsed it. Good God, OK. And the plants, they yes. often get overlooked, don't they? Uh, yes, they there, do. are, there are some plants unique to this sort of environment? Yeah, there are about 400 native and exotic species, but most of them are, na are native, and um, they include uh, the native brooms. Believe it or not, we have a native broom, not uh, the European one that you see, the yellow flowering one. We've got lots of them. Yeah, we've got g plenty of grasses, and these are small things, though. You know, some of them... The lepidiums, for example, you just about have to be on your hands and knees to see them, but they're kind of flat, matte plants that don't mind poor gravel soils and harsh weather like, uh, you know, mm. severe winters and that sort of thing. They can, so they're, they're, yeah, they're amazing, really. And in getting on your hands and knees, which yep. botanists love to do, they do. Um, pl some plants have been rediscovered after decades not being seen at all. This is interesting. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, one of the, the um, my collaborators in the in the book project, Albert Rebergen, was um, was responsible for that a discovery that um, he he made. In fact, he made also an interesting um, observation of a galaxid native fish, which um, which has uh, also appeared uh, and is now uh, declared a new species. So um, the things that are turning up there, and not only plants, rare plants and uh, uh, but also some, some rare lizards and some rare fish as well. And while we're doing that, I mean, it, it always reminds me, because I've written on nature 
uh, a lot over the last 30 odd years. The more we look, the more we find that that is new or rediscovered. Mm. Okay, and you don't skimp on the invertebrates as well. You've got Brian Patrick as a co-author on on this. I suspect uh, he's all over that. He is all over it, and he's on his hands and knees very often too. But, you know, we've got a very interesting weevil, the nobble weevil, which is Canterbury, yeah, endemic species found there only. You know, plenty of moths. Uh, Brian's specialty is moths, but he, he carries over into beetles and into wetter and, mm. and especially the, um, the grasshoppers. OK, well, the grasshoppers, the pictures of them are ridiculous because yes. you can't see them. That's right, yeah. If, yeah They're yeah, well camouflaged. They are suited to that environment, aren't they? It is. They are, and the robust uh, grasshopper. It looks like it's wearing armour, doesn't it, against the rocks. Mm. It probably needs to in terms of um, <laughs> the birds that might grab it. Right, they're fascinating things. The flurry of dairying that we've had over the last couple of decades yep. um, has been, I suppose, you could argue a great wonder for our economy. But these areas, are they particularly sensitive? Is your area of interest here, the abraded rivers, directly affected by increased dairying in these areas? Yes, they would be if that if the uh, if the development extended right to the the water's edge, that kind of thing. But there's other things going on here. I mean, we we've it's a well watered landscape in the sense that when you look at it from above, you I mean you see these rivers. There's 13 of them running into three lakes in this upper Waitaki area, running into or out of the three lakes, the 13 rivers. So that it looks like there's plenty of water. Well. Uh, there might be in, in one sense, but actually, you know, this is kind of um, in the rain shadow of the Southern Alps and, and so is a, a dry area naturally. And so sort of any inter- irrigation is going to take, uh, and, and if we're talking of, um, of dairy development, which requires an awful lot of water to sustain it, then you, you, you can run into conflicts, conflicts between kind of what the the industrial scale dairying requires in the way of water and what the natural habitat requires. Okay. Is there any dairying there now? Yes, there is. And uh, anyone driving the Auraki uh, Mount Cook uh, Road or around Twizel, uh, south of that towards Omarama, will see um, plenty of, of, um, of the big uh, irrigators uh, that are stretching out across the paddocks. What effect are they having? The point is that they are kind of changing the environment. At the least, it's probably uh, impacting on native plants, which actually, you know, when you look at it, traditionally this was mostly sheep farming in in the past, and quite often um, if the sheep weren't grazed on these sorts of areas at at a a maximum, they would, you know, eat their way around native plants and allow them to survive alongside the pasture. So, yeah, um, there is a problem. And uh, dairying will create a kind of monoculture of ryegrass or whatever other grass species they might want. What about nitrification of the rivers themselves, cow shit? Oh, yeah. Well, Is that a problem? Certainly, yeah, a, a problem if there's no riparian. And even if there is riparian, I mean, it'll still make its way. The, the nitrates will still probably get into... Um, but it's not laissez-faire for the dairies, is it? They can't just do that. What do you mean they can't? Uh, they can if they get a consent, but uh, I mean it's a question of uh, it will be always a question of kind of how much uh, the region can stand in terms of an, an industrial scale. Do, do herds of cattle 
trudge through on any regular basis unchecked through these rivers? Yeah, there have been some, I think, but I don't know in recent times. Uh, essentially, they are not supposed to be in the waterways. Right, and farmers would want to play fair? Yes, I think many of them do. Yeah. You know, it's just it's, it's a question of kind of keeping the, the scale right and uh, trying not to impact too hard on the, on the natural values. Yeah. Okay, Neville Pete, thanks very much. Rivers Rare, the first 25 years of Project River Recovery. It's in a bookstore, that's what it says on the front. Neville, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Graham. Bye bye. New Zealand is yours. Go there now. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. On the New Zealand International Film Festival, I think quite a remarkable thing. It's New Zealand made, Maui's hook. It's so much more than what it says on the packet and writing something on the packet to say what is inside it, we understand is a difficult job. The director and creator of it, Paura Joseph, is with us in studio. Uh, Paura, welcome. Kia ora. Kia ora, Graham. I've watched the film. But damn you, that hurt. It hurt to watch. Right. <clears throat> it is a really powerful watch. It's like a documentary in which a piece of dramatic cinema is a stowaway. There was a lot of thought that went in beforehand, the drama element in the documentary, and can it be confusing? I, I, um, no, I, I think it's seamless. That's why it's it didn't put me off. Yeah. I thought it was yeah. a strength. Yeah. I thought, one hell of a trick. Hats yeah. off. You know, the litmus test was... We had our Canadian niece staying over and her boyfriend. And um, as an audience, prior to the final edit, we sat them down and got them to have a look at the film. But because they're like 17, 16, you know, yeah, they, they were hooked after about the first five minutes and then it got sort of halfway through the film. And I asked them at, at the end, of the, once they'd finished watching the film, what they thought. And they actually thought the Fano were actors in the film, the families themselves. <laughs> They had no idea. They they thought they were watching a film, and they didn't really analyse it as to whether it was a documentary or a drama. So that's what I wanted to happen, you know, because there's a huge young audience out there, and and that was definitely one of the big targets for the film. It's a new genre, <clears throat> isn't it? Right. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Okay, it addresses suicide and its impact on those that remain, and in a surrealistic way. It also addresses those that have gone. Sometimes it's actually quite frightening. That surrealistic aspect, it sent shivers up my spine. The scene in the lake. Right, yeah, that was interesting. I thought about that afterwards, and I thought about the tohu. You know, we say in Māori terms, we talk about tohu as the signs that, that occur. And there were many signs that occurred in the making of the documentary, you know, especially weather-wise, you know, when turning up to Tereringa Wairu, of course, with a rainbow and then a patchy sky where it wasn't raining around the whānau who were filming at the time, the floods in Whanganui. But even with the drama itself, that scene that you're describing, you know, all these te waka waka turned up when we were filming that scene with um, For our, those our that actors. don't know, te reo, what is yeah. te waiwa? Uh, Fantails. Fantails. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, right. so, I mean, just there probably would have been about 30 fantails that tu- turned up. Yeah, Piwai Waka Waka. Well, that's okay. up north. Oh, Piwai I Waka see. Waka, yeah. Right. 
that was quite incredible that they so just that, turn, that, turned up on that scene when we're talking about um, mortality and they turned up. Because they're famously associated with ancestor spirits. Yeah. Oh, I had almost some camera on. It just, <laughs> just come out of nowhere. Wow. Well, they've got one hell of a spooky film, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was to translate that sort of after-death element. That was really important as well because there's a phenomena called magical thinking, especially amongst young people. You know, not really considering death as being a finality, so mm. you know, hence, hence the reason to right. Well, you, have your that. background is in psychology, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You're a psychologist who's made a movie. Yes. Okay. The psychology. How does that inform what you're making? I go back to my original intention. I, I, I guess, in terms of wanting to become a, a youth worker or psychologist, and that was to help people, but really understand suffering as well. You start off wanting to help people, but then you realise actually it's all part of the same thing, that when you're helping other people, you're actually helping yourself. I've said before that you know it's a huge privilege when you hear other people's stories as, as a psychologist, and I think over the years, hearing so many great stories, you want them to come alive and be shared so that it can somehow be affected. Um, so much of the emotion, or a lot of pain, is really fresh and visceral and it's expressed because there is that blurred area are they actors are they not I think I can kind of figure but I'm, I don't know but <laughs> you get that yeah. real visceral emotion yeah there's a lot of honesty with the emotion and I always look at myself I always think because it's not made up no no it's not as a director and a psychologist I think you're one removed from the chair you know so I always as I say, I, I, you know, it's a great honour to be amongst these people who actually give over their vulnerability like that, you know, mm. in raw honesty. I'd hate to give people the impression that we've got the answers. <laughs> if we had the answers, why are we here sitting here three years later? Like this. Aye. This is unbearably painful. I can't stay. <clears throat> It's a special uh, piece of permission to get the camera rolling. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as I say, I, I think directing is an easy job, you know. It's, you're just trying to facilitate a process, really, but it's the people themselves who are, who are sharing the guts of uh, what's going on. How was that negotiation in order to get it, a yes? It's like with everything. I, I think it, it, it's, it has its trials. There's a lot of trust involved, and I think, you know, within the Māori world, that trust doesn't come easy. A lot of the time it has to be earned, and I'm not saying that I've, I've earned that, but because it wasn't just me, there, there were so many other people involved bringing those causes and conditions together. Mm. There was a lot of consultation with elders, um, karakia done before, karakia done after, a lot of questions from my, on my behalf. And I think as a direct, when you're doing this too, you, you can't have any doubt it's not to say that I don't have doubt, but when I do have doubt, I have to go back to my intention, and, and that, that is a spiritual intention. You know, relying on the tūpuna, for example, mm. knowing that this journey that you're taking these people on, that, that it has real meaning, it has real merits in terms of what's being done. Otherwise, why would you do it? You're literally taking to Cape Ranga. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's what I mean. You, you can't fake that. You know, you, you can't manipulate those aspects, especially to do with the way that nature, in particular, the elements are reflected back to you. Okay, to the issue at hand. Gosh, there's been a lot of hand-wringing about suicide, yeah. even the mention of the mm. word. Your thoughts as a psychologist? It's a subject that we, we do need to 
talk about a lot more and uh, I suppose less judgments around what's happened, what's, you know, judging ourselves, judging other people for the actions that they take, but to actually look at real solutions uh, in terms of what we what we share in common as a human race you know I, I think those are, that's what's important especially when we live in such a, a beautiful country as as ours you know Aotearoa I, I know I've, I've done a lot of traveling when I was younger and seen a lot of things in third world countries and I just think wow I go back to thinking I, sometimes you wake up in the morning and you can't believe where you actually live you even know and when ha- it's, even when it's raining and even when it's raining <laughs> and even when it's cold yeah. you know it's damp but you you know we're, we're so blessed there I is think. a lot of rain in Maui's hook your room isn't there it? is well that's what I'm that's saying Graham you know that's the tupuna really and the, and the kaitiaki um, talking back at you about what's going on why men why so bad in men? Men, yeah, I, I still grapple with that one. I'm still looking for answers myself. I think uh, young men in particular, I think we, we don't, I say we, I'm the old man now, but, but young men in particular in our society don't have a, have a voice. I, I really believe that. Um, there's a lot of identity issues, you know, and, and, and so I think for young men in particular, it's easy to get lost. Like with women, for example, even young women, um, it's not to say that those issues aren't um, as apparent. However, y- you know, there is the, the whare tangata. So the, the, there's always that possibility for women to give birth mm. and to have that connection mm. with offspring. Mm. Men will never... Hence there's that enormous value, always has been in, in society. Yeah. You know, men will never have that same connection. Well, they are the okay. provider. Yeah, men, the provider, mm. in a sense of... Uh, uh, honour and pride in doing that and when you don't it's a much bigger fall yes and and, yeah uh, yeah, absolutely and we have a lot of you know unfortunately once the suicide becomes a solution which it's it's put out to be these days why because there's role models to suicide hence you know you see the dramatic part of the film where you've got Tama's father who took his life so unfortunately that's a real scenario you know the father the uncle you know so when you get generations of people doing that and that's put forward like i say as as a solution then there's going to be follow-up and and so what we need to do as a society is to try to close some of those doors but also recognize some of those factors around identity which are really important that's why i say young men in particular have been the most vulnerable um, and continue to be Maori men, yes, in particular in, in terms of the statistics, but um, you know, young men in general. Yeah, <coughs> actually, that's the biggest leap, but that's the one that leaps off the graph more than anything else, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, and there is a Pākehā family in your mm. oh, movie? absolutely, that bloody moving yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, oh, they, they were great, and they jumped into it. You know, they they jumped right into the deep end. Well, they've got their own. Take my hats they've off. got their own take on it, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. they do. Yeah. But, you know, that's, it's also a reflection of our society. We wanted to say, hey, look, um, this is a, a, a kaupapa Māori way of dealing with grief. However, it can potentially, this healing can be, be for everybody. Mm. You know, Pākehā or Māori, it, mm. it, it, it doesn't matter. We live in the same country. It's not as if you have to tick the boxes for, for everybody, though. This is a movie about these people that you've got there. Look, this is a bloody moving watch. Serious question. Um... As I began this interview, I said, damn you, it hurt. Mm. Do you recommend being at least on a pretty stable mental ground before you go and see this movie? Well, I Do think, you think there's yeah. anybody that don't go see it? No. 
I think this is a movie for everyone. I think that anybody who goes to see it will take something from the film, and particular from those Farno, who have you know shared so you know um, generously. Um, they will be able to take something positive from the film. It's exquisitely put together. I've yeah. got to say, it's quite a special thing. That mixture. It's you. It's almost a little confounding. Is it documentary? Is it cinema? You can, you can. I don't know. It's the cinema stowaway in there. It's just magical, and hints of surrealism. And I got scared. <laughs> I haven't been oh, scared watching yeah. a movie in a while. Well, you, you wanted to be. You know, you should have been with us on the hikoi. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and another thing. This is just a little practical thing, and hats off. Um, you want to bring everybody along. So even when English, let alone Tyrell, is, um, is spoken and it's peppered with Maori phrases, you give us a translation for those that might not know. That's nice. Cool. Really good. That brings everybody along. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. The movie is Maui's Hook. Paura Joseph, the director, has been with us. Quite a thing. And it's on at the International New Zealand International Film Festival. We have links all over the place, so you can go and find yourself a showing near you uh, when it goes around the country or in Auckland at the current season. Okay. Paona? Thank you, Graham. It's a strength to your arm. Good one. It, and it's a beautifully, beautifully put together thing. Quite special. It can be overwhelming. You just want to join them. Someone does love you and care. We try too hard sometimes to stand strong when we really need help. The work that we're embarking on is all about honesty. We don't have the answers, but we can talk about it. Through talking with one another, we may find a solution. Listening live, are you? Nice to know you're still up. Give us a call if you'd like a double pass to the New Zealand International Film Festival. A double pass to pretty much anything you like. 0800 844 747. Thanks so much, NZIFF, for making these available and making them so general, unspecific. 0800 844 747. First caller through gets it. No hoops to go through. And new sport and weather coming up next. The other side of that... We hit Lou Reed's Street Hassle from 1978, myself and Grant Smithies. Uh, well, now Lou's dead. I think we can say more things about him, can't we? Without fear. <laughs> a bit like Frank Sinatra. It's a good discussion on a really cool album.